listeners. This is Marsha Epstein, and this is Talk With Me, coming to you from Lawrence, Kansas, where we have conversation on air. We have some readings when we have writers. We have some music when we have musicians. We have laughter always, because that is who I am. Um, I asked some personal questions. You know what it is if you've listened before. I so enjoy doing the show. I, I enjoy getting to know more about some of those artists who we can read or see perform or hear perform, all those different things. Um, it's, it's really nice to me for us to have those personal conversations and get even more re- even more intrigued and remembering that, you know what we can do with that energy? We can go make a purchase of some art by somebody a book, a painting, a greeting card that's made from somebody's photograph, you know, that idea of supporting what we really believe in, that how we spend our time and our money really does reflect what's important to us. So for me, that means I brew my coffee at home and I make periodic trips to places like Cotton's Farmer's Market and support local vendors and Raven Bookstore where I was just yesterday to get a new book and also a special treat to send to a poet friend in Pennsylvania because everybody needs to know about Raven Bookstore. Anyway, today I get to do this conversation with somebody who we connected for a whole other reason, have been talking for a while about the possibility of doing a podcast together. And then when I noticed that, wait, May 17th, Raven Bookstore, Tessa Gratton. We need to finally do this podcast. So welcome. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. And I didn't ask you how to say your last name, so to say it's Gratton. Gratton. Okay. Because like, oh, it could be Gratton. It could be. Sometimes the pronunciation isn't what I think, and I usually ask. <laughs> I'm so glad that you're here. Because again, we've, we've kind of had a little email conversation for quite a while now. Yes. And it was cool to see, all right, she's going to be featured at Raven. I'm so excited to be at the Raven. It will be my first time at the Raven, uh-huh. though I've had books out before here. Uh-huh. Um, but all the timing just really came together nicely. And That's for this, very too. Cool. Very cool. Very cool. Kudos to everybody who has, as I said, been caretakers of the Raven bookstore, starting with Pat Katie and Mary Lou Wright, who opened the place, Heidi Rock who has been there and left last summer, Danny Kane, who's the current caretaker. And I will say little shout out, Heidi is opening with her partner, Steven Anderson, a book and art store in the Door County, Wisconsin area. Not open yet, but in 2019, when you head on vacations up north there, go check out Yardstick in Algoma, Wisconsin, because some of that goodness of Raven is gonna be up there in Wisconsin. Anyway. I'm excited. I'm excited. I'm excited about, you know, your description of your work and sort of that, that, and, and that speaks to, to Danny Kane, um, bringing in people to read who have lots of different interests. Diversity is really important. Social justice is important. All kinds of things. So I need to stop blabbing. Back to you. Tell For people, um, just tell us a little bit about you, a little bit of things that, that they might want to know, and then we'll start more. Sure. Um, I I am Tessa Gratton, and I am from Kansas. My family is from Kansas City and uh, small town Kansas and Chicago, but I've lived all around the world because my father was in the Navy. But I 
always knew I wanted to come back to Kansas because I love the land. And I have lived in Lawrence since I transferred to KU my junior year in 2000. And so I've lived here ever since, except for two years when I went to graduate school in Cincinnati. Uh But I absolutely love this town. I love this land. Uh And I am the author of several novels, uh, two young adult fantasy series, The Blood Journals and The United States of Asgard. And multiple short stories that have been published in anthologies and that I've published on my own mm-hmm. online. Uh-huh. And this book that just came out is my adult fantasy debut. Nice. And I'm so excited about that because adult science fiction and fantasy is my favorite genre to read okay. and has been since I was about 10 years old. Okay. So this is really you know, a, a dream come true, but also I worked really hard for it. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah, yes, it yes. is. See, yeah. I love that you said that <laughs> on the Talk With Me page. There's a there's a show recently with Jenny Washburn, and as she and I were talking about things, I said, I have to share this quote from Shonda Rhimes, and I'm not going to go through the whole quote, but the basic message of the quote is, I am not lucky. I work so fucking hard. I am a badass. You know, yes. that's that's how it happens. Yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. You have to work to get yourself yes. to the right place at the right yes. time. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Um, so The Queens of Lear is this new book, and it is a feminist fantasy retelling of King Lear, which is possibly my least favorite of all Shakespeare's plays. So it really um, angered me when I first read it when I was young. And I've been thinking about how bad it is and how wrong Uh everything about it is Uh for almost 20 years. Uh So this is, this book's been a long time coming. Yeah. And I do want to say it's published by Tor, um, which is a science fiction and fantasy publisher. And when I was, 18, it was my senior year in high school, I wrote my first like full length novel. I'd been writing um, not what I called novels before then, but you know, they were like 40 pages long because Uh I was 11. Uh But my first real novel I sent to Tor, they were the first publisher I ever tried to publish with in 1998. And I got a very lovely letter back from an editor there fortunately rejecting me uh-huh. <laughs> because that novel was not g- a good novel not really but okay. yeah but you know to be published now at tour uh-huh. where i always wanted to be published since cool. i was 18 Very is, cool. yeah i'm extremely excited about this book well i'm intrigued by you have been writing since you were young in this particular genre and my brain jumps to somebody very dear to me who at a young age was a fan of Ursula Le Guin and other kinds of writing. And I know what that was about for her. So I'm, I'm really, I want to ask you, tell me about that, that you, you connected with this genre early on as a reader and a writer. What, what yes. do you remember about what, what made that can be so important to you? Partly I read this, I read science fiction when I was young because my parents did. My parents are both, voracious readers and they read in almost every genre. Mm -hmm. And so we had uh, thrillers and biographies and science fiction and romance. We had everything in our house. Uh And I remember 
gravitating to the ones with dragons on the cover because uh-huh. I loved dinosaurs and uh-huh. dragons are even better than dinosaurs because uh-huh. they can fly. Um, and so that definitely started because it was a like a reading, a very reading, positive, nurturing um, home. Uh-huh. And I think that the reason I stayed with fantasy and science fiction is because one thing that the genre has always done is use metaphors to explore actual human problems, to get into humanity and the questions of who we are and where we can go and where we've been that, and and they answer those questions with magic or Uh with spaceships. Uh So it is extra exciting and also very much about, you know, these ultimate human questions. Uh-huh. And as an adult, you know, the, the reason that I, I know the reason that I write this is because I find both excitement and comfort in asking very hard questions when I have a little bit of a pillow to, you know, I can interrogate things with a metaphor and it, uh-huh. it, it helps me dig deeper than I might be able to dig if I was only using the real world. Uh-huh. Um, I wrote a novella several years ago and it is one of my favorite things I've ever written. And it, I wrote it because I was obsessed for about two years with um, IEDs. It started when my dad was um, stationed in Iraq in 2004, 2005. Mm -hmm. And so I read everything I could about um, the situation in the Middle East and the American um, (laughs) imperial, um, uh, basically everything that was going on. And I really fixated on the job of that some of our military, it was their job to get rid of these um, explosive devices, Mm -hmm. hidden explosive devices. Mm -hmm. And anytime they would leave the base, there was just always this danger that Mm -hmm. anything could blow up and kill them. Mm -hmm. And so I've read so much nonfiction and fiction about the experience of this. And I wrote a novella parsing my own fears, what it, like trying to figure out why is this the thing of the entire morass of the U.S. wars in Iraq and Afghanistan? Why am I fixating on this thing, Uh trying to really pull that apart? And so I started writing a novella about a character in a secondary world where the bombs are magical. Mm-hmm. And so I could really, I had to invent these explosive devices. I had to invent the motivations for all the different factions about, you know, the long histories of war and the give and take of, you know, there aren't any good guys in this situation. And so um, I, I don't think I could have written a story about my relationship to the Iraq war mm-hmm. without magic. Uh-huh. 
because partly because I wasn't there. I didn't right. actually experience it. So I had to use my imagination. Yeah. And that really lent it, it's a tool. Uh-huh. So that's why I write fantasy. Interesting. Interesting. And and so it's it's a totally different story than my friends draw to that genre as a youth and as an adult. And so it's it's really interesting to hear that from my perspective, it starts with your father and his experiences and needing for you needing to understand and and sort of process that in a a different way. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. First, we said IEDs, like, what? No, no, it probably explosive devices, but it's like, but that's what she's going to talk about? (laughs) (laughs) Wait, 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 wait. Yeah. Not not what I think about (laughs) in terms of. Sci-fi, right? Excuse me. <laughs> Very interesting. So, have you? Do you write other? Do you only write in this genre, whether it's for young adults or adults? Um, or are there other kinds of writing that you tried along the way? I have written a couple of short stories mm-hmm. that are not fantastical or speculative, uh-huh. but I don't. At this point, I don't have any interest in uh-huh. spending more than five thousand words. Yeah exploring something without the the trappings or metaphors uh-huh. of the speculative genre. Uh-huh. So I've written romances, but they're always there's always an element of science fiction or fantasy uh-huh. and like murder mystery. My first series is the first book is basically a murder mystery, but there's also blood magic. Okay. So um even when I lean in other directions, uh-huh. I am still, I've still got the magic <laughs> overlaid or, you know, the, the spaceships or something like that. Uh-huh. So, Interesting. yeah. Um, I, I don't ever want to say never, but I don't have any projects in my subconscious uh-huh. or, you know, and nothing's swimming around right now that I think will not be speculative uh-huh. on some level. All right. And and that's pretty much been the case since you started writing as mm-hmm. a, a young child. Yes. And partly it's because that's what I read. Uh-huh. And most people write predominantly in the genres that they read. That they enjoy. That yeah. makes sense. Do you also have to do a lot of reading that gives you sort of the, the background for how things are going to work so that they are believable in some sense? I don't, I don't know Definitely. how to say that. Um world building is what um most people in my genre at least call the like the setting and the government and the culture and all those things are all part of world building like Uh building a world and for me i do a lot of reading and but that comes out of i'm always learning um, I, so I always have stacks of nonfiction books in my house, like things I'm interested in that I'll just pick up either, you know, at a bookstore or a library or on the internet. And I'm like, oh, I need to know more about this. Uh-huh, uh-huh, okay. And my interests tend to then lead me into building a world. Mm-hmm. I rarely start writing something and then seek out background information. It's usually the opposite where I'm reading all kinds of books about a particular subject and that subject finds its way into the setting of the next book I want to write. 
Um, you know, like this, the Queens of Venice Lear, I've been thinking about on some level for almost 20 years. Uh-huh. And my second series, The United States of Asgard, I was thinking about that world. It's an alternate history. It's an America that was founded by Vikings and their gods. And so the gods are real and there are like trolls in the Rocky Mountains and Valkyrie interfering in Congress. So things actually get done. Um, <laughs> what? Right. <laughs> um, and so I was thinking about that for a long time before I ever started writing the first line, the actual uh-huh. story. And so I read all kinds of, you know, Viking history uh-huh. and okay. poetry and U.S. history and, yeah. you know, things about developing governments, both the actual way that our government what developed uh-huh. and the ways that we think the Vikings developed their government, uh-huh. um, you know, 1200 years ago. Uh-huh. And so those things, because I was interested in them came together and I wrote these novels yeah. and yeah. So I don't know if that's something that everybody realizes how much in some sense, how much work it is to be able to have a coherent storyline with all these different threads and how, a lot of that is going to be based on some real history or science or whatever mm-hmm. you want to say. Right now, coincidentally, in terms of b- before I found out that you were doing this reading on the on May 17th at the Raven, I um, I have a dear friend in Oregon who is his he's a his uh, profession his paid work for um, a long time um, was he worked as a nurse and writing has always been a passion. And so he's, um, I'm currently uh, a beta reader, a kind of a bunch of us are kind of doing some some editing on the third volume, this book called Metamorphosis um, of this of his trilogy, Paul, Paul Ross is his name. And, and, and I find I don't have, I don't have the medical background. You know, I don't know. There, there are themes about genetics and things that, that relate to, to this story. And I don't, you know, I guess he could be making all this shit up, but my belief is that this is this is very scientific. That that if somebody else who had that background was reading this, they wouldn't be distracted by oh that's stupid. That's not the way it really works. You mm-hmm. know, they would know that okay, this writer knew these things, and so this is this this lets me enjoy the storyline as opposed to like that is really stupid. That would never happen, kind of thing. And so that's a weird way, a very simplistic way for me to say. You know, to, to readers to appreciate really how much work it is not only to write well but to write stories where the threads intertwine in a way that the readers can follow and they make sense there's mm-hmm. meaning and then because of reading that as readers we get the benefit of you know, thinking about some things in a new way as well as mm-hmm. entertainment as well as you know yeah. lots of different things about that's writing. the goal yeah yeah <laughs> entertaining but making you think about something in a different way. Yeah. And I want to ask because of, of this particular book, would you say in general that your your books portray females in a way that may be different, maybe more um, if I just say feminist than than a lot of other writings? Um, is that is that a conscious part of, of what you're doing is the roles of your female characters? Definitely. Yeah. I have considered myself to be a feminist since I was in high school. Okay. And that is one of the main reasons that I tell stories is to interrogate 
our world from a feminist lens. Mm -hmm. So all of my characters, not just the women, mm -hmm. are constructed with an eye toward, you know, deconstructing toxic patriarchy mm -hmm. or, you know, asking questions about what is this, like, how can we um, question the, you know, white supremacist, imperialist, capitalist society in which we're living, <laughs> like all these very big questions. Mm -hmm. And you have, I think that's the point of story mm -hmm. is to ask questions about ourselves mm -hmm. and about our culture mm -hmm. and hopefully to, you know, point toward answers that will make us better. Mm -hmm. So that's very, cool. that's very cool. It's a big responsibility. Yes, it is. It is. And I actually think that's something that a lot of writers need to be more aware of uh -huh. is what a responsibility it is to be a storyteller uh -huh. and to, you know, be asking these questions and creating characters and worlds and stories with an eye toward doing no harm at the very least, uh -huh. doing no harm to other people and other readers. Uh -huh. And that that's something that um, a lot of the history of Western canon has completely erased most people mm -hmm. so that the only characters and the only stories that matter are characters and stories about white straight men. Mm -hmm. um, and anyone who is not those things is erased. And that in itself is harm. That is doing violence, taking away someone's stories or taking away their ability to see themselves in a story is violence. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that is an incredibly important part of moving literature and story forward is <laughs> making people stop doing that. Yeah. That's so cool that you mentioned that. One of the things that, that I'm loosely involved with uh, is this national people's movement called the U.S. Department of Arts and Culture. And it's really about elevating everybody's stories, you know, mm -hmm. and and it's a it's a loose knit group. I mean, anybody, anyway, can, anywhere can participate in different ways. There are filmmakers, there are poets, there are any kind of, you know, visual artists, writers, all any kind of artist who participates with with that goal that everybody belongs and everybody's story and everybody's culture is valued and valuable and needs to be respected. And so mm -hmm. there are things that happen, like you think about a woman, Betty Yu in New York City, who's a filmmaker. And, and one of the areas where she has used her art is to work against gentrification of the Chinatown area in New York City, because the gentrification destroys people's abilities to live and continue their small businesses, mm -hmm. you know, when they're priced out of the neighborhoods yeah. that they've historically lived in, as an example. You know, so, so I think that this thing about how powerful art really is, mm -hmm. You know, some people think about, you know, that it's maybe frivolous, that it's, you know, it's not, you know, it's not that important. And unfortunately, in our country, um, in our state, we don't act like art is worth investing in. Mm -hmm. And I'm not talking about people in a one-on-one -on -one basis. I'm talking right. about government decisions. I mm -hmm. think about Karen Miriam Goldberg was the poet laureate of Kansas when Brownback defunded the Arts Commission, mm -hmm. which had hosted that program of poets laureate and she she conquered kansas in, in that sense because she did what poet laureates did and she went across the state with poets and encouraged the writing 
but she didn't have the governmental, the Kansas governmental support that, right. that people had had previously. There's all this kind of stuff. Art is, is important and it's powerful. And it, yeah, it can be entertaining and give us a break from life, but it also can get us thinking about things. Yes, you know, it should be getting us to think about things. Yeah. And as an artist, one of the things that you know I think about a lot is not just how my art will, or how I hope it will find a, a place or a, a piece of the conversation mm-hmm. and open up avenues for conversation, but also I think about how I am a part of the structure, Mm -hmm. you know, because, you know, publishing, for example, in order to get published, you have to join the the system of publishing, Mm -hmm. which is dominated by that same voice, that same narrative of the, you know, white Western straight man. Mm -hmm. And in children's literature in so young adult is the genre I've published in the most at this point um that the ranks of publishing are actually dominated by white women specifically mm-hmm. um and they're it, you know it's so important to interrogate what privileges that gives me as also a white woman mm-hmm. and being able to communicate very you know, without needing to move out of any comfort zone with the other white women in who are editors and publishers mm-hmm. and publicists and mm-hmm. the library marketing people mm-hmm. and on every level of kidlet. Um, and, you know, that gives me a lot of power in the system, even though my books, like the actual stories I'm telling include non white straight narratives and characters mm-hmm. and are overtly feminist mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, part of what I do besides writing, you know, that is the most important thing is creating the art, but also um, participating in the politics of my art, mm-hmm. which are very much like with many things in the United States right now um, in this crisis moment of, but we have been one voice for so long. It's always been white and straight um, and there in Kidlet, there is this really amazing um, organization called We Need Diverse Books that was started um, three years ago now, maybe four, but they focus on getting marginalized authors and stories of marginalized characters in front of the gatekeepers and mm-hmm. breaking down these barriers and creating um, opportunities with money mm-hmm. <laughs> to, um, you know, give scholarships and grants and um, all kinds of things. And that is, I, I want to say, an equally important part of my job, mm-hmm. you know, because I'm an artist, but it's also, you know, that is, that's like my calling. And that's what I, how I am best suited to Mm -hmm. trying to change the world is through the actual story. Mm -hmm. But to do that, it also has to be a job. And part of my job has to be working overtly to break down these um, like oppressive systems. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's awesome. Yeah. (laughs) No, that you know that you are saying uh, this is a commitment that you bring. Right. Right. Yeah. Cool. 
we're talking a lot about your writing and I know, you know, we really want people to be in the room with you if they're, if you're in the Lawrence, Kansas area on Thursday, May 17th, be at the Raven bookstore at four to be able to meet Tessa, to be able to hear her read, to be able to get her to sign the book. I think it's in the evening. It's at like seven. seven it's always seven. seven okay. Raven. Yeah. 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 That's just okay. a given. <laughs> okay. I thought you said at four. Oh no. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah. I, I hope I didn't, but if it sounded like that, yeah, yeah it's, it's, Raven and and those events are free. They're delightful. Mm-hmm. You might make some new friends. You might have a kitty sit on your lap because <laughs> there are two kitties in the store. You know, it's all good. Um, I would love to have you read some from the book if you're willing. Sure, I am. I have not actually read from this very often. It just came out a month and a half ago, yeah. and um, I think the prologue is a good place to read, but also one of my favorite chapters um, that has been in almost every iteration of the book is where I'm more leaning toward, if I can find it. (laughs) Um, I wrote so many different versions of this book Mm -hmm. over the course of the last three years Mm -hmm. that sometimes I forget that some scenes have actually been in every single draft uh-huh. because they've always been core scenes. Uh-huh. Um, and so that's, I'm looking for one of those core scenes right now. It is a scene between two of the three sisters. Here it is. And I probably won't read the whole chapter because it is pretty long. Okay. All the chapters are pretty long. That's all right. <laughs> So this is, this takes place, it's actually a flashback chapter. It takes place five years before the action, the main action of the book. And it is two of the sisters meeting together for the first time in quite a bit of time because they've both married different men at this point. Um, And they're both, these are the two oldest sisters and they're both very interested in basically destroying their father because they blame him for everything that has happened to um, diminish the the power of the island where they live, their their kingdom. And also they blame him for their mother's death. So five years ago, Astora. The star chapel of Astora was built into the surrounding mountains, formed of heavy limestone and plaster, painted generations ago with gold flake and indigo to make the first chamber like the vault of heaven. Regan Lear passed through it, unconcerned with the public sanctuary. Heads turned as star-kissed priests and the prayerful noted the middle daughter gliding through sharp and smooth as a galley in calm waters. Not since her elder sister's wedding to their duke two years ago had Regan come to this chapel but she was immediately recognizable. Against the martial Gala Astor, who covered herself most days in armor and the raiment of men, it was perhaps a surprise to gaze upon such a sleek feminine princess. Regan's gown was voluminous and pale as the sky at dawn, dragging behind her in perfect half circles of oystered layers. She wore a veil of thin silver chains woven into her curls, and looped beneath her chin from delicate brooches at her temples, a dripping crown of rain. But most startling of all, this princess smiled. 
Today was the first day Regan had been truly happy since her mother died. She reached the arched doorway leading to the chapel of the navel and heaved it open. The staircase was narrow and cold, and instantly she was assaulted by the damp air blowing down from the chapel above. This was the oldest chamber in the church, carved high into the side of the mountain long before any dukedoms, when the island welcomed people into its bleeding heart. Regan lit no candles from the small storage alcoves. In violet darkness, she steadily ascended. Her thin-soled slippers tip-tapped against the stone, echoing forward like a gentle warning. She paused to tote them off at the top of the stairs, proceeding forward in bare feet. The passage was not long, but it narrowed in the center before widening again, like a birthing canal. Or that was how Regan imagined it, her smile brightening. The navel itself was merely a stone rectangle cut into the mountain, with a ledge carved along the walls for sitting. The entrance through which Regan had arrived looked directly across the 20-foot length and through two narrow stone columns outside into the dark valley below. Astora City was a warm glow, and beyond, velvet hills lifted gently away before stretch of purple sky. A six-pointed star had been carved through the roof, allowing moonlight and starlight to shine dimly in. It was not the proper time of year or night to serve its greatest function at the apex of the longest night. Regan moved directly below the skylight, where the slate floor had cracked with age, and knelt beside the only adornment, a stone water basin carved beside a deep, narrow well. The well was covered with a wooden lid, so Regan shoved it aside. She dipped her fingers into the stale, tired water, ruining the dull reflection of the night sky, and touched the wet blessing to her cheeks, her lips, and then the linen over her belly. Her hand remained there, cupping the only star Regan cared for, that new pinprick of light in the deep recess of her body. She bowed her head, a smile continuing to play at her lips, and thought of the life in her, that dynamic, dangerous spark. Her breath was low and long, deep and content, not a feeling Regan was accustomed to, being a woman of sharp, fierce ambition. She rarely experienced anything like peace in her heart. Satisfaction, however, was a thing she'd recently come to know quite intimately, and she was pleased to discover how the one could lead to the other. The stars grew bolder as she waited, and color fled the sky until it was black as black could be. Regan imagined the moments approaching again and again, her stern sister's mouth falling open in surprise, their embrace, the tense, rough argument, followed by renewed dedication to each other. It was a thrill to anticipate the special, unique pleasure of being one mind with Gala, the most ferocious, the great pillar of her heart. Of course, she heard her sister approach. A clatter and grunt, the oddly gentle ringing of metal, like a song. Regan straightened her shoulders, held her penitent pose. Behind her, Gala burst into the room with a quiet curse. Sister, Gala said harshly, not from anger or irritation, but only for herself. Gala wielded her words and movements like armor and war hammers. Regan preferred her own thorns to be small and precise and subtle, though no less deadly. 
Settling back onto her heels, Regan sang out in the language of trees, sister, one of the only such words Gala understood. Gala Astor fumed out of the shadows, stomped to Regan's side and fell hard to her knees. She wore leather and wool, an empty sword belt and a skirt of mail. Her hair was twisted back like the roots of an oak, pulling her forehead wide. She was a beauty despite herself, Regan had always thought. A slice of moon, magnificent and dangerous. This should be filled in, Gala said, gesturing at the old well. Why did you wish to meet here after all these months? Regan waited, patient with Gala as with no other. Gala's eyes roamed her sister's face and body, coming to rest on the hand still curled at Regan's belly. Yes, Gala whispered, and her mouth broadened into a toothy smile. Regan grasped Gala's hand and flattened it against her belly, pressing their hands together there. The future queen. Wow. Your writing is beautiful. And I mean, for me, just listening to the story and so rich in senses, you know. Thank I, you so much. I, I, you know, I, as, I'm, as I'm imagining the walk and I'm, the barefoot and then the coolness of, you know, walking with bare feet and, and all these different, all the different senses involved to me. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Yes. Yeah. I had a great editor. Uh huh. But it takes your writing. It's not just that somebody nudged you here from there. Yeah. She was, <laughs> she was very good at, um, at helping me find the exact right rhythm in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. Um, I came to this wanting it to be lush and lyrical Mm -hmm. and sometimes complicated because those are things I associate with reasons I love Shakespeare's writing Mm -hmm. is he's so lush and lyrical and occasionally overly complicated. Uh And, you know, I know those are things that I brought to this and I, my editor was so good at seeing what I was trying to do mm-hmm. and pointing out places where maybe I could shift something slightly less complicated okay. in order to communicate better with readers. Mm-hmm. And she has been amazing. I uh, Her name's Miriam Weinberg, and she is a fantastic editor at Tor mm-hmm. and really helped make this book as like spiraling and messy and complicated as I needed it to be. Mm-hmm. But also, I think communicate what I wanted to communicate. Uh-huh. Well, the, the complication keeps us intrigued as readers, you know? Hopefully. I don't want to start a book and go, yeah, 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 I know it's going to happen, mm-hmm. and read a little bit more and go, yeah, that's what's going to happen. You know, mm-hmm. I want to be motivated to to read more, to read more, to read more, and to wish that it would never end. <laughs> <laughs> that's the kind of reader I am. Like Me I too. Say, I, don't, yeah. I don't read short stories because, man, if it's a good short story, I'm not ready for it to end in 15 pages or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I like I like to continue. I'm I'm very much more. Uh, I love reading much more than seeing something on a screen, which isn't very hip, I know, but it's true. <laughs> and I like reading on paper. I don't like reading on technology. <laughs> oh, I agree with you. I do. <laughs> I, I love being able to take a hundred books with me on an airplane, but my preference is to read yes. a book that I can hold partly because I feel like I have a better understanding of the pace and the story as a whole. Okay. If I am actually 
holding the book uh -huh. in my hands because I'm always feeling whether I'm in the first half of the story yes. or I'm getting so close to the ending, yes. you know, that alone, like the sensation of only feeling point. 20 pages left in my hand yeah. can ramp up the tension for me as a reader. Uh -huh. And if I'm reading it on my phone, I don't have that same sensation of, holy cow, this is going to end soon and I'm not ready for it to end. Yes. So that's, I, I think about this a lot uh -huh. um, as a writer who, you know, I am very aware of what I want the book to feel like. Uh -huh. And part of that is a, the sensory experience of holding it yes. and keeping in mind eBooks makes that much more complicated because I also want readers who prefer eBooks sure. or read by necessity on an eBook because it can be so much easier physically yeah. to read an yes. ebook and ebooks you can make the print bigger so it's easier for people um who have trouble reading small print like uh -huh. there are a lot of reasons yes. that it's so fantastic that we have electronic books now yes. and i don't want those readers to miss out because i'm writing only for this giant hardback yes. um and so like i've rethought the use of white space a lot uh -huh. and really trying to keep in mind that white space when you know when it's a book that like this is like i don't know what this is nine inches by five six inches i don't know it's very large uh -huh. but that is and a, a different of experience of a, a white a white space uh -huh. than an ebook there's a chapter in this book that is only one paragraph long and on the book in this hardcover, it is isolated. And you, when you turn the page, you know this is a chapter in isolation uh -huh. because it's surrounded by white. Uh -huh. But in the ebook, it takes up the whole page. Yeah, and point. so it's just it's just something I think about a lot. Uh -huh. <laughs> well, I think as an artist, artist that makes the difference of the presentation of yeah. the art. Yeah. So and also reading it like that is very. I enjoy reading out loud. Uh -huh. I enjoy theater and particularly something that's based on Shakespeare. I wanted it to sound good mm -hmm. read aloud, mm -hmm. but uh, you know, that's another form of presentation. And yes. there is, there are actually two audiobooks of this. Um, the Macmillan, who is the publisher that Tor is an imprint of, they have an audiobook, and my UK publisher which is Harper Voyager, they are producing an ebook as well. So there are two different versions of the audiobook, and it is fascinating. I bet. Um, the first chapter of this book is sort of a mythical prologue introducing you to the island and to you know the world. And so it's very much a fairy tale sort of um like a repetitive it's the first line is like it begins when a wizard cleaves an island from the mainland because her king destroyed her temple and then the next line is it begins when this other thing happens and then there's another you know it begins when and so it starts weaving together i hope this picture of what this world is like mm -hmm. and how there are so many different beginnings to uh -huh. every story. Uh -huh. And um, so it's very mythical. And the 
U.S. reader has a very um, practical way of speaking, and she's a very good reader. Um, and I, re I actually requested an an American accent uh -huh. um, because I don't think Shakespeare should default to British accent. Uh -huh. um, I think that's elitist. Uh -huh. <laughs> and the idea that Shakespeare has to sound smart and we associate a British accent, uh -huh. a specific British uh -huh. accent uh -huh. with sounding smart. Uh -huh. um, and also fantasy is generally um, plagued with the same trouble. You know, like Game of Thrones doesn't take place in England, but they all speak with an English accent. Mm. You know, like this kind of thing. Um, so I re specifically requested that the American audiobook have an American accent. Uh -huh. And the, the woman does a fantastic job. And, um, but her reading of this mythical prologue is very much a practical, you know, it begins, it begins. And then the British narrator, who does have a British accent because she's British, uh -huh. and, um, I that was a different situation. Yeah, and yeah. Um, so she reads it, and it's just the difference in how she performs the book. Uh -huh. And so she, her reading of it is like seeped in like centuries of like Celtic mysticism or something. Uh, it's just such a different experience and such a different introduction to a book. And the words are exactly the same. That's very interesting. So it's fascinating to me to listen to the, the, the first chapter uh -huh. side by side. Uh -huh. And they're both on the internet also. Um, and I can send you, I don't know if you ever include links, oh, yes. um, but I can send links to the, their free audio samples on the internet of both prologues. Uh -huh. Oh, so, interesting. Um, if that's something sure. you might like to share, if other people want to listen. <laughs> and I love that it's available as audio because when you were talking about, you know, technology mm -hmm. has the advantage for people who might have visual impairment, for yes. example, you know, and for people um, to, to experience, just as I really enjoyed hearing you read from your book, mm -hmm. I can imagine it being a delight to be able to listen to that whole book, whether it's because, you know, reading on the page would be difficult for me or just because. And, and in fact, I, I recently in my social work side was reading an article about the benefits of being read to aloud. You know, mm -hmm. That's a whole other thing. And, and then there, my brain goes to family vacations. And, and when we had the, uh, the, audiobook of the princess bride and hearing that as my husband and I and our two sons are driving to Colorado and and things that were so fun mm -hmm. to listen to that's a whole other delight. I, I bet I, that's a great audio <laughs> I should get that <laughs> it really is it's really fun and and it's it's different because there's a movie of it but for me well yeah to me one of the things I love about books and what I loved about when you were reading that is that my brain is building that scene you know, what those women look like, what that space looks like, what the stars coming in, you know, with mm -hmm. the, the vision of the sky through the six pointed star, all, all this stuff, you know, and, and for me, um, being a person who had the, um, in some sense, I will say this part is luck of being able to become pregnant and, and have a child that, that, you know, her hand on her stomach and thinking about, you know, what that's like for a woman who's happy about being pregnant. Um, you know, it's, it's, yeah. The hearing hearing it is is beautiful. Reading it is beautiful. 
imagining it to me is is so powerful. Not to say it'd be bad if somebody made a movie out of it. I don't want to deprive <laughs> you of that, but but I do. I, it's, yes, the book's I, always I better. I welcome all the time. <laughs> the book is always better. But having both would be good. Wow. <laughs> this is really exciting. We have about 10 more minutes of, of talk and reading. And so I want to throw it to you. This I, My hope is that people are intrigued. They're thinking about this woman is bringing some different things into her writing and is a be- and the writing is beautiful. And again, if, if people are in the area to, to go to Raven on Thursday, the 17th of May, hear it in person, meet Tessa in person, buy the book, get her to sign it, you know, it, whether it's for you to keep or for you to give us a gift after you read it. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. I believe in that, you know. Me but, too. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes that's what we do. Um, yeah. And when you can really tell your person you're giving it to, like, this is a great book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just trying to spill a lot of stuff on it while you're reading it. <laughs> reading is a great thing. And, and so this, you, you mentioned at one point that there was about three years of writing of this particular book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what, what does that mean for next? Well, I have, I was also working on another book during those three years mm-hmm. um it works out well for me to have two projects active at the same time uh-huh. um which does not mean i am drafting them both at the same time but you know i'll draft one and then put that one aside and work on another project and then while like i'm revising one i can be drafting another because mm-hmm. they're very different acts of Mm -hmm. writing and while my editor is reading one Mm -hmm. (laughs) I can be working on the other one Uh um and so I have a another young adult fantasy that comes out in September it's called Strange Grace Mm -hmm. and it is about a small village in an isolated valley that has perfect weather perfect health, perfect harvests. No one ever dies before they're very old. And, you know, thing injuries heal very quickly because every seven years they send one of their teenage boys into the forest to um, face the devil. And he um, probably will not survive that night. Every mm-hmm. once in a while, a boy survives, mm-hmm. but they usually don't. And so they make this sacrifice of one of their sons to for perfect a a perfect Uh. life and um my the story takes place over the course of like three or four days when the it's they call it the slaughter moon which is a specific full moon it rises four years early so it's only been three years since the last time they sent a boy into the forest and so three teenagers go into the forest and they're not supposed to, but they do mm-hmm. to figure out what went wrong. And, you know, um, the story is really about their relationship and about their relationship to their, the adults and like the stories that we tell and how stories can turn into lies and structures and how, mm-hmm. what we as a society ask our children to sacrifice in order to maintain wow. our happiness going forward. And so, I mean, it's also like, there's, there's action and kissing and Uh um, uh, that kind of thing, but I'm really 
excited about that book and really proud of that book. Mm -hmm. um, so Strange Grace, it comes out in September. Oh, yeah. it's that close. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was working on them at the exact same time. Mm -hmm. And I sold Queens of Innes Lear about five months before I sold Strange Grace. So it makes sense that they're coming out about that many months apart okay. too. And then I am currently editing a companion novel to the Queens of Venice Lear uh -huh. um, that is based, it's a retelling of another Shakespeare play. And this time, instead of one of my least favorites, it's a retelling of one of my all-time favorites, which is because I am a super Shakespeare nerd, Henry the Fourth, Part One, uh -huh. <laughs> um, which is the first play with Prince Hal, Henry V, um, and you know Falstaff and Hotspur, who's my one of my favorite Shakespeare characters, and it is called Lady Hotspur because I basically took the story and changed everyone's gender uh -huh. um, somewhere along the gender spectrum. I love that. And I am working on it still right now, but it takes place about a hundred years after the Queens of Inneslier. Uh -huh. And whereas Queens is really about the destruction, like it's about things falling apart, families, kingdoms, relationships, and the struggle, what happens and how things really fall apart. Um, because King Lear is a tragedy and is one of the most tragic of all Shakespeare's tragedies because everybody makes bad decisions mm -hmm. in that play. And one of my challenges was trying to find um, a way to write passionate, interesting characters and give them motivations that feel true and readers can empathize with mm -hmm. while also being like, oh my gosh, I totally understand why they're making this bad choice. Mm -hmm. And I can see that it's going to end badly. And in fact, it does end badly mm -hmm. for most of the characters. Mm -hmm. But Lady Hotspur is about rebuilding and about trying to take broken relationships and broken um, kingdoms and find a way to put them together and to maintain the good that there is. And it's, a, it's not a tragedy, mm -hmm. um, which was a really a relief as a writer to mm -hmm. write something that is hard and painful, but that I could sort of spiral upwards uh -huh. instead of spiraling downwards. Uh -huh. um, and I'm extremely excited about that. And it is supposed to come out next April. So uh -huh. April 20. Wow. But that is assuming that we get it finished in time. Uh huh. So those are my next, my most um, soon to come projects. And all my other projects are in baby stages and not. But that's impressive yet, that so. you have two projects coming that it's like, I'm, I'm my mouth is. <laughs> dropped open if people could see me on unfortunately it's a necessity uh to um make a living as mm -hmm. a writer mm -hmm. is to have as many projects as possible mm -hmm. um before the queen's venice lear it had been four years since my last novel came mm -hmm. out and i you know i've been working on other things really hustling mm -hmm. on other projects and not not my own novels mm -hmm. in order to make ends meet sure. and i have a um, you know, I'm, I'm married and my wife also <laughs> hustles uh -huh. and has multiple jobs and things uh -huh. like that. Uh -huh. So the life of artists. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like we have our own small business running, writing workshops and writing retreats. Mm -hmm. So that's something that we also do. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's, 
possibly the, you know, one of the biggest stressors for writers um, these days is you can't only put out a book every four or five years unless you are a mega seller. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to be incredibly um, well published in order to do that. So what fuels you? How do you do all of this? Um, desperation. <laughs> <laughs> These people were, I, I've had somebody else say, what makes me do, and not related to art, but what makes me do it is what would happen if I didn't. <laughs> right, yes. <laughs> um, I would write no matter what. Mm-hmm. So on one level, that's what makes me do this Mm -hmm. is I would be writing these books no matter what else I was doing. Mm -hmm. Um, I was lucky enough and this was luck that the, my timing for when I was ready to sell my first novel. So Mm -hmm. when I was a good enough writer, when my, I finally had written a novel that was sellable. Um, it was in 2009 and in um, the in YA, that was the height of like the YA bubble, okay. where um, we were still as a genre building up, like figuring out. Publishers were like, "Oh my gosh, you can make so much money selling books like Twilight mm-hmm. and The Hunger Games, and but especially Twilight." Mm-hmm. Um, and so publishers were um, throwing money at certain genres okay. within YA. And so um, my generation of, and by generation, I mean, like, we're talking like a year at a time uh-huh. of debut writers, debut kidlet writers, um, there was enough money that some of us were able to quit our jobs mm-hmm. um, in order to focus writing full time. Okay. And um, I have never um, made enough money Mm -hmm. to do that ever Mm -hmm. since then. I mean, the bubble bursts, like they always do. Um, But also, I mean, that's just the nature of things. But because I had a, you know, very supportive partner and I wasn't making that much money at my part-time secretary job to Uh begin with. Uh um, So I got into this place where I had maybe a year, year and a half of, um, income from one book sale. Mm -hmm. And so I could learn how to work on multiple projects Mm -hmm. and how to juggle Mm -hmm. different things and figure out what do I actually need to do as a, on a job level to allow myself the creative space to be a full-time writer and stay a full-time writer. Uh And it's gotten harder and harder, Mm -hmm. but, um, you know, that's, that's yeah. life as a, um, as an artist or as a freelance, yeah. anything. So part of what our listeners are hearing is if they're writers, some of the realities, you know, and if people know it's challenging. And mm-hmm. my, my impression is that in some ways it's even more challenging for people who write things, I'll just say other than poetry in terms of getting published that, that because a lot of poetry perhaps is, published through small presses and relatively small books. And there are certain different presses that have really specific um, kind of a feel for them mm-hmm. and what's there that, that making the step into publishing any kind of a novel is 
is a huge challenge at this time in our country for a lot of reasons. So I want to ask you again, just one, one, one kind of, in terms of what fuels you, what's something that has nothing to do with reading and writing that's really something that kind of energizes you or relaxes you or whatever that helps you dedicate all of this time into your writing? Well, with the caveat that everything fuel, well, I mean, right. like every experience I have, everything that I do, whether I'm watching a movie that I think is bad uh, or <laughs> traveling, well, I mean, like consuming yeah. think bad um, <laughs> media helps me figure out what I don't want to do or uh -huh. what I, you know, help me figure out story. But like, so with the caveat that everything yeah. does in fact fuel my creativity, um, the one thing that I started doing several years ago that I find incredibly cathartic and like meaningful and doesn't always directly impact my writing uh -huh. is boxing. That's awesome. <laughs> um, okay. That's, that's great. I love I love hitting things. <laughs> and, you know, I have a, a boxing um, bag in my garage, hanging uh -huh. in my garage. All right. And it's a part of my exercise routine. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, and exercise in general. I am a walker and I uh -huh. really love walking. Uh -huh. And that reboots me every day. And also gives me a chance to really brainstorm and process like the emotions that I'm feeling about my daily life, about the world, um, and about whatever scene I'm struggling with um, in a way where I can't actually sit down and write about it. So I'm forced to just sort of be with my mind and my dog All and right. nature. All right. And then I can go box and just like take out my aggression. All right. That's cool. <laughs> so just a reminder to people that just because somebody's a writer doesn't mean that they have no connection to their body. For right. Yeah. You really <laughs> need to. <laughs> exactly. So. Exactly. And so we need to, to uh, say so long. We're, we're at that point where this has been delightful, this book. And, and I want you know listeners to know again, that this has been a conversation with Tessa Gratton. This new book, The Queens of Innes Lear, is the book that she'll be reading from on Thursday, May 17th, starting at 7 p.m. at the Raven Bookstore in downtown Lawrence, Kansas. Um, be there, look for the book, look for the audio, however you want to do it, but this, this would be a delight. Thank you so much for being Thank here. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fantastic. <laughs> Thanks to producer Daniel Smith for letting people hear this great stuff. Thank you so much, Daniel. And so long to our listeners.